Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. And this time I'm joined by Polster and the podcaster Kieran Pedley, who now works at Ipsos Mori and used to podcast regularly about polling on the Polling Matters podcast. Welcome to the show, Kieran. Hi, Mark. I'm, I'm used to being the other way around with you over the years, uh, <laughs> me, me, interviewing, uh, me interviewing you. So I'm hoping I was sufficiently nice to you and, and, and generous so that you'll be the same with me. <laughs> let's see. Let's see. So we're recording this just after the big May round of local elections. And I thought an interesting question to start with was one that a fair number of political pollsters and our political scientists were debating on Twitter last week, which is how useful really are local elections for telling us as what is happening in national politics? Because after all, local elections are nominally, at least, about local issues. And for national politics, we have the national polls. So how much attention mm-hmm. do you think we should pay to, say, thinking about the next general election based on what we saw last Thursday? So I think they are useful. I think they have to be placed in their, their proper context. So first and foremost, let's, let's, let's stress that they're important because how your local council is run is important, right? So I know mm. you asked about the national picture, but first and foremost, anybody that lives in this country, you know, their lives are directly impacted by local authorities and local councils, and therefore who controls them is important. And when we, without jumping straight into the polling, when we ask people, about what affects your quality of life in your local area the public do tell us it's their local council so this they are important um in terms of understanding the national picture like i say it's about putting it in that in that context there are all sorts of reasons that i'm sure you'll be familiar with and listeners will be familiar with as to why you have to take care turnout in local elections is much less than a, a general election invariably whilst we've had quite a lot of people voting across britain in these elections not everybody does and people do recognize the difference between local and national elections hence you know partly that's why turnout is lower but also people do tell us when they vote in them that it's a mixture of local and national issues that govern how they vote so but with all that being said they do give us a real world real voters picture of what's going on um, they give us an ability to somewhat sense check the polls nationally to sort of see if there's any glaring obvious sign of something being awry. Hopefully, I've had enough of that for my own career so far, but you know, it's always something you've got to be vigilant against. And also, I think for the, for the political parties themselves, uh, as you well know, um, they do give a sign of where targeting might be more or less effective I- I- in the future. And I don't, like I say, the reason I started by saying local authorities are important is because I don't want to make everything about you know, what, what a Westminster election will be. And we also have devolved authority, devolved assemblies and things of that nature too, that have other elections in Wales and Scotland and so forth. So I would say, look, you can learn things. They're very interesting. We'll be pouring over the numbers in the coming days, weeks and months. But probably the most extreme example of IU, that I use as to why you should take care is 2017, where obviously Theresa May did extremely well in the local elections. And then, but we later lost her majority and again without going into the nuts and bolts of that you know the situation did change in between those elections but that's just a warning sign as to why we should take care um the trajectory of these things is never set in stone so just because the local elections went a certain way last week doesn't mean that a general election will inevitably go another yeah and i think that point about what might happen in the future i think is a really important one for I think parties like the Liberal Democrats, so smaller political parties who can be particularly dependent on 
their ability to buck the national trend in a relatively small number of target seats. And, you know, the all time classic of that for the Lib Dems was the 1997 general election, where the national polls in advance of the election were reasonably good at getting what turned out to be the Lib Dem vote share right. But what the national polls couldn't tell you was that we were pulling off the combination of a falling national vote share and a massively big increase in the number of MPs. The parliamentary party doubled in size, uh, whilst the Lib Dem national vote share fell by a point at that election. And that sort of question of, for example, are we really successfully concentrating progress in the places that matter most for the next Westminster election? A national poll can do that a little bit for Labour and the Tories, but even not get into much resolution for them. But certainly once you're into smaller parties than that, I think the seeing how really well the Lib Dems did in you know lots of blue wall areas, for example, I think is in some ways uh, not a replacement for what the national polls tell us, but a really helpful supplement. Um, and I think also what 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 you can sort of, you know, it's easy to get therefore overexcited, but one shouldn't immediately translate local government success into international government success. But where the polls and local elections have told conflicting pictures in the past, the most famous example with the run up to, to the 2015 election and actually Matt Singh, you know, partly made his name as a polling pundit by pointing out that difference as one of the mm -hmm. reasons why he thought the polls were going to be wrong in 2015. And he did, you know, and he turned out to be right on that. So they're quite a helpful safety check as well, aren't they, on whether the national polls are getting the broad picture right or not. They are. And I'd say one of the things that I'm, in addition to that, one of the things that I'm looking at personally quite closely is to try to understand whilst not predicting what our future general election result will be, just trying to understand like, the dynamics in some of the key areas um, that might impact that. So uh, to, to, to expand upon that point, I mean, for example, I've been looking at Wales a lot this morning. So, and, okay, Wales will not, sorry, Wales won't decide the next general election necessarily, but like at the same time, at the last general election, there was a six, a six seat swing from Labour to Conservative. And if that was reversed in its entirety at the next general election, that could contribute towards the difference between the Conservatives holding their majority or losing it. And I think like being able to look at the votes and say, well, OK, Labour might have gained such and such councillors or the Tories have lost such and such councillors. But where is that? Because the, ultimately there is such a thing, particularly first past the post, as we know, of, um, you know, sometimes parties stacking up votes where they don't need them. And uh, Local elections can only tell you so much about that, but it does give you a little bit of an indicator as mm. to. So I, that, that's part of the challenge, I think. I think Rob Ford's referred to the, the academic has referred to these as messy results. And I think part of the challenge with interpreting local election results is trying to understand, yes, OK, the number of councillors or councils might have moved here and there. But actually, you, you want to look beyond that if you can you know, to understand where the vote share is moving and what that might mean for the future. Yeah, and I, I guess there are two ways of interpreting the messiness of the results. One is, if you're particularly thinking about wanting to understand the national political picture, to therefore be slightly dismissive about the value of local elections and instead say, well, let's go for the, you know, the simplicity of the tool that's dedicated for understanding national politics and national you know, opinion polls. But the flip side is, you know, the other argument is that the messiness of the results shows actually how much messiness there may well be with behind the national aggregate figures for each party. And I think you see this with the variation, for example, in the change in Labour support across the country. 
in the local elections. I think overall Labour's performance was mediocre. And I think that is illustrates what comes out in a lot of the polling at the moment as well. Yeah, like, you know, looking at the Ipsos Mori polling, particularly, for example, not just because you were on the show, but also because there's a lot of Ipsos Mori has some really long historical trends of asking, consistently asking the same questions. You know, you see that Labour ahead in the polls, which is clearly a better position to be in than behind. But once you scratch under the surface of things like people's views of Keir Starmer, it's a you know, it's a fairly mediocre, fairly lukewarm level of enthusiasm for Labour. And I think the local elections help unpick the fact that behind that there's quite a lot of geographical variation. So I think I think let's I think we've both given good enough reasons to draw some national conclusions <laughs> uh, from the local elections. With some yeah, caveats. podcast over. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's see with those caveats, though, what what the national pictures are that we should perhaps draw for the parties. It's perhaps obvious to start with Westminster Government Party, the Tories, their national equivalent vote share. So what vote share they would have got if all of the country was up for election. The BBC's figures put the Tories on 30 percent and they lost just under 500 seats in total, 487. The 30 percent, I mean, is a you know, down on last year down uh, a lot on four years ago but if you think about the run of elections since there was a first Tory prime minister in 2010 they've been <clears throat> worse than that they've been in the 20s on at least on three occasions I think it is since 2010 so I guess that's a poor result but not quite in the meltdown territory on the other hand the seat numbers 487 losses that was really at the top end of what almost anyone was predicting the Tories might lose. And I think the Tories were quite lucky at how that number really crept up during Friday, that the early results pointed to a rather better seat number change for the Tories. And I think that shaped some of the initial media coverage and pundit reaction. But yeah, what's your take on Tory performance? On that point, just briefly, it does it does strike me that how results are announced really does shape the narrative, like the time, the timeline of that. It reminds me a little bit of the US presidential election yeah, where like, like like Florida was announced for Trump and then there was a sudden like Twitter panic in the UK. I don't think I don't think panic's probably unfair given the UK's polling shows that people in people in the UK Prefer Trump to lose than win, but anyway, let's not go down that road too far. But the point but here, being, here's that... a fun thought though, just on that point. Imagine how much different perceptions of election results would be if California and Somerset counted first rather than Florida and Sunderland. Well, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and to the point about, I mean, it was never really going to happen with the U.S. presidential election, but if, if it had been announced early that Joe Biden had won Pennsylvania and you know Michigan and all these places, then. Um, the narrative there would have been perhaps a little bit different. So mm. anyway, leave that to one side, because mm. the, the early narrative was all dominated by Labour in London, and obviously that, that's an area where Labour typically does well. But even there, Labour did lose control of Croydon and Harrow. I know we're sort of talking about the Conservatives here, but so it just goes to show the chronology of how things are announced is kind of important. I mean, my take on this somewhat echoes James Johnson's, who's a sort of pollster that um, people will know, know of, which is that I think we have to be careful about sort of extrapolating too much from these results to a general election. But it does feel like the risk for the Conservatives is almost the air coming out of their political balloon slowly, if that's a metaphor that works at all. It was always very, very difficult for these elections to be a big bang that kind of led to a vote of no confidence in Johnson and was was ever going to be 
catastrophic just because of the nature of these areas being primarily places like London and, and places that Labour held. But when you look at them in the round, almost 500 councillors lost, Labour becoming the second largest party in Scotland. I think Wales, as I alluded to earlier, you know, some of the swings towards the Conservatives in 2017, which is when Wales was last up, being reversed. Um, strong losses to the to the Lib Dems in the South. It wasn't a very good night for the Conservatives uh, at all. And I suppose there's two ways of looking at it. One is about Johnson's future, which is very much an open question, I think. It feels like he's reasonably safe in the short term, almost as much because there's no obvious successor for Tory MPs to rally around than anything else. But that could change very, very quickly with further fines and um, the Sue Gray report and whatnot. But then there's a Conservatives prospects, and you look at these results in the context of real public concern about cost of living, and I would be nervous if I was a Conservative MP looking ahead to the next couple of years. There are a range of possibilities in the future. One of them is the Conservatives. These results would point to the Conservatives losing ground at the next election, next general election, so they end up with a reduced majority. But that majority could be vulnerable. And I think one thing that we know, seasoned watchers of these things know, that once the Conservatives do lose their majority, their their margin of error, pardon the pun, <laughs> for, for how they stay in government is very small because, as we know, beyond the DUP, who have their own problems, their, their, their potential for support to be propped up in government seems quite uh, small. I'm not going to put you on the spot, Mark, but like with the Lib Dems, but it doesn't feel like there's uh, lots of appetite for a sort of uh, coalition Mark II or anything, you know, on either side there. So I guess in conclusion, I would, I would I'd put it as a very bad night for the Conservatives with the one caveat, though, that any, if we're trying to look at the national picture, any read of the Conservatives also has to take into account Labour as well. And I think you alluded to earlier the public aren't convinced by Labour. And there's just two brief stats I want to give you on that. Mm. Keir Starmer's net satisfaction rating has been hovering around the sort of between minus 10 to minus 15 mark. Mm. So this is where you subtract the percentage that are Mm. are dissatisfied with the job he's doing from satisfied. And that's roughly in line with the leader of the opposition typically gets in the last sort of 40 years. But most of them lose. Mm. So I don't think you necessarily want to be roughly in line with where the leader of the opposition typically are so you know better than Corbyn isn't necessarily well isn't going to be good enough and then secondly and I think a number I follow quite closely is that around a third of the public think Labour are ready to form in its government it had been as high as 38 percent in January but it's fallen back to a third now and so what I think you see with Labour is like hostility towards a party dropping and falling but people are just unconvinced and and the reason I mention that now without jumping too far ahead to Labour's specific performance is that if you're going to look at the Conservatives' prospects medium to long term, like I say, whilst these results were bad, you have to look at the opposition picture as well. Yeah, I think the one thing I would add about the Conservative results is I think they show up this fundamental, almost paradox of politics, especially in the first past the post, which is that parties that are doing really well almost always do so off the back of the breadth of a coalition of slightly disparate groups of support that then when the tide turns makes their position look very fragile and so Boris Johnson you know frustratingly from my point of view but one has to acknowledge from a technical perspective very impressively (laughs) stitched together in some ways quite an improbable coalition of support 
to win the 2019 election. And he didn't just win it you know, with a really big majority in terms of MPs. He also won it with a very healthy vote share. This wasn't sort of you know, sneaking in through the back door, courtesy of the quirks of first past the post on the low vote share. But you look at the local elections this time and you sort of think that, you know, he stitched together a coalition of progress in Scotland, progress in Wales, eating into the Red Wall and holding on to traditional Tory heartlands in what we now call the Blue Wall. In these local elections, the Tories did poorly in Scotland, in Wales and in the Blue Wall. That's quite a difficult mix of areas to try to reverse political trends in whilst also holding on to the Red Wall. So I think there are some real strategic dilemmas for the Conservatives there, which I hope they will fail to address, but certainly will be, I think this is a good example of where the local elections just tell us a level of nuance that helps understand that strategic dilemma rather better, doesn't it? Yeah, I know you want to, and I know you want to move on to Labour and the Lib Dems, but just to briefly inject on the Tories there, I mean, if I could shamelessly plug a piece I wrote for the New Statesman recently, um, there is this cost of living point. I know it's no, I know it's a bit of like a spoiler alert. Cost of living is important. I think we know we all know that, but it really needs to be emphasised. I wrote a piece for the New Statesman referencing the Reagan question in, in the US mm. nineteen eighty election, mm. which uh, I think you know, listeners to this podcast will probably be more familiar with than, uh, than most. I think, but this was basically where Ronald Reagan was running for the presidency from opposition, and he said he asked the American people, "Are you better off than you were four years ago?" You know the history says that they said no and they gave him a big victory and he was in the White House for eight years and so on and so on. And, and this is a concept I'm quite interested in here because it's like, it's very clear that people don't feel the answer to that question is certainly no here. I mean, 55% think they're worse off than before the last election. Yeah. Now, they don't completely blame the Conservatives for that, it should be stressed. And look, if people want to look at the piece, they can look at the piece. I won't go into it in too much detail here. People don't blame the government 100% for that. But they aren't clear that the Conservatives are doing enough. And I think there is an instinctive uh, sentiment that Labour might do better on this particular topic than the Conservatives. So I'm not saying this is going to define the next election, but that issue isn't going away. And that's going to set the overall mood music of this, of stitching together this coalition, as you put it. And so I suppose the question is, with the absence of urgency of get Brexit done, keep Corbyn out, and this sort of cost of living destroying the wider sense of optimism in the wider environment, that's really damaging for the Conservatives. It's just whether the opposition parties could take advantage, and we just don't know that yet, obviously. Yeah, so let's turn to the largest of those opposition parties, the, the Labour Party. We've sort of teased a little bit what I suspect our conclusions are going to be on this, about it being a somewhat mediocre set of results. But I have been surprised how the Labour media operation has seems to have really underplayed the story about how Labour's done, that there is a more positive story. I wouldn't go out and out to say it's a successful story, but I think there's certainly a more positive story to tell about Labour than is reflected in quite a lot of the media coverage. Because if you look at the that national equivalent vote share, I talked before about the Tories being on 30%, Labour on 35%, five points ahead. That's certainly better than they've done for a good few years, I think you have to go back to sort of Miliband type territory to find the larger lead for Labour, maybe even further back than that. So on vote share, that's quite a promising set of figures. The number of seat changes, seat gains and net gain of only 108. I think it's hard to get too excited about for Labour. Other than 
if you look again at the picture, certainly since 2015, up until this year, Labour had lost seats in five out of the last six rounds of local elections. So to actually post a set of gains this time, again, you could make something out of perhaps a beginning to turn the corner. And of course, some really symbolic headline gains of roles of councils, especially in London. So I think overall, my take on Labour's performance is a bit more positive than what a lot of the media coverage has been. But yeah, what's your take on that, Kieran? Well, the first thing is we kind of do have to acknowledge, I think we might come to this later and sort of looking ahead, but we have to kind of acknowledge Keir Starmer's the Durham Police investigation into Beergate and, and Keir Starmer, because whilst I don't think I'd go as far to say that it's all about the leaders in terms of uh, the national picture and elections, it's obviously if Labour are to change their leader at this stage of the parliament, that becomes a big unknown in terms of how that goes, like, you know, there's a range of possibilities there isn't there like it could be that all of the old wounds are reopened in the middle of a leadership contest where I'm not going to name the issues but where the the, the issues that they are debating are completely disconnected from the the, the, the cost of living let's say or the national issues yeah and like people just see the Labour Party as this really divided beast and they go oh god it just reminds them of why they were skeptical in the first place and then they don't like whoever it is that comes in and, and you see what I mean and then there's obviously a negative path there there's also the kind of Tony Blair path and I feel a bit squeamish making this comparison but we've got to remember that Tony Blair became Prime Minister because John Smith died um, mm. and, and like whilst I'm not comparing I, I feel, like I said I do feel a bit squeamish comparing Keir Starmer's situation to, to John Smith for obvious reasons mm. but in some ways there are similarities at least in the sense of if there was to be a new Labour leader now they're coming in sort of almost mid-parliament I think Blair was a bit earlier than mid-parliament but they're, they're coming into sort of mid-parliament and there's a sort of short run up to a general election. Mm. If they land well within a, against a Conservative Party that's uh, facing its challenges, shall we say, then well, I mean that, that could change that could change the dynamic in a different way. So we have to acknowledge that because that could be a game changer. Let's wait and see. In terms of the results, I sort of uh, mixed bag. I think it just what it just reinforces to me is that people aren't so convinced by Labour, and I think that. In the, the current incarnation, the Labour Party should expect to make gains in a future general election, but whether it's going to be enough to be confirmed. London was obviously positive. They took Westminster, Wandsworth and Barnet. I think we mentioned earlier, though, they did lose Harrow and Croydon. I, I was talking, I don't want to talk about Wales all the time, but I was talking about Wales earlier. And it just struck me that there was definitely, there's definite progress for Labour there versus the Conservatives, which, which will encourage them. For the future and I think one of the hardest messages to land is this message around the red wall and, and, and areas there where I think most people that listen to this will know but the comparisons were 2018 rather than 2019 and so Labour sort of standing still or slightly going back in the red wall in these local elections is actually pretty encouraging for them for the long, longer term mm. and I forget I, I'll be completely transparent with you I, I forget exactly the exact definitions of the red wall sometimes but I noticed that Labour gained Rosendale and Kirklees they held Wakefield which obviously has ramifications for a future by-election and so I think what I would I, I would say they were solid but unspectacular results and, and leaving aside the obvious question of the leadership which may go away very quickly or may become a very big issue um given that wider political environment of cost, around cost of living and the by-elections that are coming, Labour could feel quietly optimistic about the future. But to revisit what I said earlier, there are there is clear hesitance. I would definitely characterise Labour's position as post-Corbyn, 
hostility has softened, but advocacy has not necessarily increased. Mm. And part of the problem for Labour when you assess their prospects, in my opinion, is that the only case study we've really got of Labour winning from opposition in modern times is Tony Blair, which was obviously an incredibly specific set of circumstances where he was very, very popular. And I suppose the thing to remember is that it doesn't need to be Tony Blair. A new dawn has broken, has it not, for Labour to yeah. be in office next time. It could be this messy coalition of, I use the term coalition loosely, I don't necessarily mean formal, but it could be this this, this messy combination maybe of uh, SNP, Lib Dem, Green, Labour, yeah, rainbow coalition or combination of sorts that forms the next administration, who knows. But I think solid but unspectacular, if I was going to put it in a sentence. Yeah, I... I guess the headline number I'm surprised Labour hasn't been making more of is that that Labour Tory vote share lead, Labour five points ahead of the Tories, is their best performance for a decade. The last time they were ahead of the Tories by more than that in local elections, I was just checking the exact dates here, was in the 2012 local election. So it is exactly precisely a decade ago. Mm. And it just feels like that's quite an upbeat number to talk about. And it just, I, there's something about Labour's post-election spin. That, likewise, last year, I was really surprised about how they didn't, to me, seem to be making the most of what they could have made of the results they had last year. But do you think um, it's partly because Keir Starmer, anytime he's going to be on the telly at the moment, he's going to get asked about other things so I know there are I know there are obviously other people that could go out and advocate for that position but it's sort of strike I feel like the story has just become about him yeah. and Big Gate and all the rest of it and possibly I've not just not been looking say in the right places on social media but I'm surprised though that that best result for a decade sort of line hasn't been featuring in the you know the tweets of sort of Labour supporters and Labour activists who pop up in my timeline so I I, I do think but I think in a way that's a slightly double-edged sword because, as you say, on the one hand, that maybe reflects some positive you know, positive news for Labour in the results. But it also perhaps casts a slight question on just how good an election machine have they got if they're not able to make more out of those results. Should we turn I to think the... Also going to be a trend- oh, sorry, yeah. No, no, I, I, I was just going to say just very briefly... I think also one of the Labour's challenges in the next couple of years, assuming Starmer remains and all the rest, of, or even if he does, whoever it is, is going to be putting flesh on the bones of what that vision is and what the policies mm. are, right? Because I mean, we all, Absolutely. I feel like every, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough now, I'm approaching 40 now, and I'm old enough to have seen a few elections where the opposition always comes in, doesn't really say anything specific about policy, people moan about that, and other people say, no, you shouldn't say about, you shouldn't talk policy until closer to the election. Well, we're going to get there sooner than you realise, right, in terms of putting meat on the bones of that. So I guess what the policy agenda looks like going into the next election, how are they going to actually address the cost of living? Is it just just windfall taxes for example is there are there other things they're going to do how's that going to go down within the party that still has quite strong divisions i think under the surface uh, it's going to be interesting but i think but that's that's the other dynamic to watch mm, absolutely so moving on then to the liberal democrats let me give you the round of reasons for Lib Dems to be ecstatic <laughs> let's see how much <laughs> water you decide to throw on that uh, so Three metrics, I guess, number of councils with a Lib Dem majority, that was up three this time, which definitely exceeded you know, internal party expectations ahead of these elections. And that means the number of Lib Dem majority councils is now back to where it was before we went into coalition, which I think is quite an important milestone in our longer term recovery to have passed. Number of council seats, 
223 net gains this time, which is the fourth year in a row that we've made net gains. Last time we were able to manage for, sorry, fourth time in a row. Obviously, that's over five years because of the one year that was skipped because of COVID. But four net gains in a row. Last time we managed four net gains in a row was back at the time of the Iraq war. And then vote share figure, the national equivalent vote share was 19%, which equaled our wonder year of the 2019 local elections of 19%. And other than that, therefore, our joint best result since going into coalition in terms of vote share. So lots, I thought, of promising signs there, especially in sort of Tory blue wall areas where we might hope to gain parliamentary seats next time Westminster election comes around but also lots of places where we went from, say, zero councillors to having a one or more council councillors once again, or seeing smaller council groups grow. So a, a breadth to our success as well. So, yeah, I just, it feels to me like quite often, <laughs> not that many years gone by, one's had to scrabble around quite a lot in the details to find some consoling news uh, about Liberal Democrat results. This time, it feels like every time you look at more details, there's more good news for the party. But do your best to throw some cold water over all of that now, Kieran. <laughs> God, you're good at the expectation management, Mark. Uh, I, I, I can tell why you're in the position that you're in. No, I, I think there's um, there's a lot of fair points in that. Look, at a very basic level, there's a strong argument that Lib Dems are the big winner of the night because they've got more than 200 gains, which is much more than any other party, as you as you pointed out. I think Sir John Curtis was 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 on the view that that might be reversing some losses from 2018, mm. but but nevertheless, you know, they're still being reversed. So so I mean, whether they were losses in the first place, that whether it's a reversion to a mean of sorts or straight gains is maybe by the by in some ways they're still gains, and particularly in England, I, I noted some very high profile councils take. And so Somerset stood out. People are very interested in Somerset because that's Jacob Rees-Mogg territory. Mm. Obviously, people that live in Somerset are interested in it because that's where they live. Yeah. And again, I, and again, I should stress, you know, the point I made at the beginning remains remains important. You know, Somerset Council being run by the Lib Dems is important because of the people mm. that live there and because it's a, an opportunity for the Liberal Democrats to show they could deliver for local people. So before you even get into the realms of well, what does it mean for parliamentary seats, that is a big council that the Lib Dems now control. So it's so it's important. Um, and at Westmoreland and Furness mm. in the northwest, it's similar. I think, I think that's a new new council. I can't remember if it's mm. unitary or not, yeah, but it's, right. it's a new uh, new council that's been gained. And then yeah, you know, some of the other gains in terms of councils, you've got Gosport from the Conservatives down in Portsmouth Way. You know, you've got well, you've got Kingston upon Hull from Labour. And I did find one that I thought was was quite interesting was Elmbridge, which wasn't gains, but no overall control. But Lib Dems did make gains on the Conservatives there. And the reason I bring that one up is because that's Dominic Raab's neck of the woods. And his majority is actually, I have to confess, much smaller than I appreciated. Uh, I didn't realise it was only a couple of thousand or so. So, look, lots of signature wins. And I, 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 I'm a bit different to some other pollsters where I will mention individual councils that change hands. I know they're often small in number, but it does matter for what local people see in terms of who's delivering their services. So that, that's important. I think the wider trend that matters most is just the, the sense of the Liberal Democrats gaining off of the Conservatives mm. in quite significant swings in the south of England, just generally. I mean, uh, that seems to be one of the biggest trends of the of the evening. I think you mentioned cold water earlier. I mean, where I there, there are probably two parts here. We do have to remember the turnout points. 
And we do have to remember that there's probably plenty of examples in the past of the Liberal Democrats doing well in local elections, so that not necessarily translating to you know gaining lots of Westminster seats in, in a future general election. Not that it's all about Westminster. And I do think in the in the national opinion polls, there's no obvious sign of a surge in support for the Liberal Democrats since the 2019 general election. What I will be looking out for, which I think is generally will be quite interesting as we go into the field for our next Ipsos political monitor, is whether you know the wider public have noticed these gains for the Liberal Democrats. You sort of low, people that aren't necessarily interested in politics on a day-to-day basis, perhaps they didn't vote in these locals for whatever reason, and whether that leads to a bit of a bump in in the national polls for the Liberal Democrats. Because not this all about national polls, but I think if you see the the obvious signs of progress that there are that Lib Dems have made in these elections, coupled with increased support in national opinion polls, then yeah, I mean, you clearly clearly that's going to be very important. But as you'll know better than anybody else, and as many listeners will know, the challenge I suppose is to convert these seat gains and these new councils that the Lib Dems control into uh, sort of national sort of members of parliament as well but but clearly a good night of progress for the Lib Dems and as we always know and I think the Lib Dems better than anybody getting that local councillor base is really important for showing you can deliver and getting the campaigning going and being able to target certain seats so I think look going back to the Conservatives earlier this will worry the Conservatives because what it shows is you can't just rest on your laurels because you think well people aren't so convinced by Labour I mean, if the Conservatives do lose a bunch of seats to the Liberal Democrats, they fall back in Scotland and Wales and, you know, but almost by default, Labour takes some seats in, in the Red Wall. Um, there's a bit of a reversion to a mean there. Then the, you know, the majority could well be at, at play, couldn't it? So, yeah, anyway, good night for the Dems, I think. If you think that the Tories need to lose only roughly 40 seats to lose their majority overall, and actually you, if you break that down into two lots of 20... Or indeed, you know, into slightly smaller, into sort of maybe, you know, sort of three chunks. You sort of think the reversal of Tory gains in Scotland, you know, Ruth Davidson's leadership, that's quite plausible. You know, other parties don't have to be doing brilliantly in Scotland to knock the Tories back again a bit there. Likewise, Labour doesn't have to do that well in the Red Wall if they're only having to be one of the three chunks of that those 40 seats overall and likewise the Lib Dems could have a what would for us be a spectacular you know result but nonetheless could be again relative could even with relatively small numbers still be well easily enough to play the other part of you know, making up the, the, those three chunks to deprive the Tories. Of we'll their, just do interrupt there very 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 briefly and I, and I know it's not when you look at the 2019 general election it's not all about where you can't just rank the uh, majorities and say, oh, there are target seats. It's a bit more complicated than that. But let's do that anyway, for simplicity's sake. I mean, there are, from my reckoning, there's about sort of seven-ish seats in the south of England, maybe a, maybe a couple more, a couple less, that are lib, like conservative-held seats where the Liberal Democrats were in second in 2019. And Dominic Raab's in that, in that, in that yeah. bucket where it wouldn't be, there wouldn't be humongous swings uh, for the Liberal Democrats to take them. But I think this is what's going to make some Conservative MPs nervous. If there is a sense of the Liberal Democrats being a real threat in the South, as well as Labour, then, you know, maybe that's what makes their majority vulnerable, as you say. Yeah, and certainly what I think we saw in the 2019 election, and we seem to have been seeing, at least in the stronger Lib Dem areas in the local elections, is an increasing sort- sortation 
of voting patterns so that after the 2019 election, there are relatively few Tory held seats where there's going to be a real controversy about whether Labour or the Lib Dems are best placed to win them. There was a lot of controversy in a lot of seats in the run up to 2019. But broadly speaking, either Labour did quite well and the Lib Dems bombed or the Lib Dems did quite well and Labour bombed in most of those areas of controversy. So that and I think you see it again, I think it was Rob Ford had a really interesting analysis, sort of ward ward breakdown of vote share changes, where in those seats where Tory held, Lib Dems second, the Labour vote share fell. Now, actually, it was the Tory vote share falling and people switching to Lib Dems that did the bulk of gaining seats for us. But the net effect of the Lib Dem vote share up and the Labour vote share down in those areas is an even stronger sense of what the tactical voting situation is. And so I think that's it. I mentioned earlier 1997, where, in fact, the Lib Dem vote share went down and our number of seats more than doubled. Obviously, very much hoping that our vote share will go up at the next general election. But I think that there is reasonable grounds for believing that we can pull off a disproportionately successful general election campaign in the places that matter most. And I think the local election results do sort of bolster that. I wonder, though, whether sort of trying to unpack that a little bit, that that generally the Lib Dems did best in areas that were more Remainy, more conservative in southern England, some spectacular results elsewhere, definitely progress elsewhere. But it seems like those three factors of geography, of sort of political values and of past you know, election results, where all three combined, that was the era of biggest Lib Dem success. Do you have a sense of which of those factors, or indeed maybe a fourth factor, was the most important? Because obviously all three are to some extent correlated with each other as well. So it may well be that there's a bit of a misleading picture drawn if you want you know if you if you simply assume that each three of those factors was itself influential yeah i think it's hard to point to one uh, and i think it's quite you know it's where you need to do the polling really i, I would say that wouldn't i but um <laughs> to, to sort of unpick why people are switching i mean it, it feels instinctively like it's almost a, a revenge of the cameron remainers almost you know to, to use shorthand where this is part of the challenge that the Conservatives have moving forward. I think Matthew Goodwin was saying this on Newsnight the other night. There is this kind of, with the Conservatives, they've got these heartlands in the South, for want of a better phrase, who may not necessarily agree with certain values or policy areas in the same way that, I don't know, Red Wall Target sort of areas might. You, you think of the the, the Rwanda policy, for example, mm. as, as a, I, I, I'm using that as a loose example because I don't have data to back it up. But just as just as a, just as a, an example of something that you could imagine the more sort of liberal Remainer type being more squeamish about versus you know your Brexit supporting person in the Red Wall. So yeah, and there may be a risk the Tories are running there, which is a bit like the end days of New Labour which is you get so fixated on trying to appeal to those swing voters who are not traditionally your supporters that you end up neglecting your base and so labor sort of new labor survived that for a long time because the their base was mostly eroded through falling turnout and the lib dems chipping away at the edges until then everything went wrong for them but you know they they managed to survived that erosion for quite a long period of time but it did in the end catch up with them and the risk for the Tories is yeah that they pitch really at the red wall and lose lots of support in the blue wall and so the red wall suddenly then ends up not being enough 
Yeah, and it's how they square this traditional, I mean, one of the interesting things looking at the economy, for example, and I've, I've talked about this on Twitter mm. before, but is that this is obviously a, an area that conservatives are traditionally seen as by the public, I mean, as, as more competent on you know, running the economy. It's like they will take the tough decisions to balance the books and so on and so forth, to, to paraphrase. But increasingly, people are seeing the economy is not just about that, but actually more about prices and inflation. And there's loads of evidence. I won't go through all of it here. That that's happening people are more concerned about yeah those those things inflation and price rises and cost of living as we've as we've talked about it so how will the conservatives manage that message of we're going to help with the cost of living whilst also being the party that can you know it's of sound fiscal management and so on and so forth i'm not saying they're contradictions in terms but it's, it's a difficult message to land another thing i would say as well just being someone that sat in with on, on focus groups with conservative voters so voters rather than members is a real, real yeah. important distinction. Um, is that there are plenty of gripes that might surprise you. I mean, tax is one um, bubbling under the surface. Uh, that in our most recent Ipsos political monitor. So we had Labour ahead on tax, which uh, is unusual, to mm. put it politely. Mm. Um, and so there are, and again, it's not necessarily the case that people will, on mass, conservative voters will on mass swing to Labour over that issue. But there is definitely disquiet there and also on crime and, and policing and things of that nature. So there is an underlying sense of, of, of conservative voters being disgruntled. And I suppose it's the what I don't know is to what extent these conservative swings to the Liberal Democrats this last week are part of that. And but and temporary. And when it comes to a general election, these people will say, well, actually, when it comes to it, I want a conservative government, not a Labour one. Or to what extent they're, they're symptomatic of a, a sort of second stage of the realignment almost. Well, we've had the red wall mm. bit, but now we're getting the blue wall bit. And I, I generally don't know the answer to that question. I mean, sometimes you just have to acknowledge, we just don't know. But that's gonna, that has the potential to be really impactful in terms of where we go from here. <clears throat> yeah, I think there's a general tendency with political punditry to be sort of over generous in drawing conclusions about long term trends from just one election result. And I think we saw a bit of this in, after the 2017 election, where there was a lot of punditry about how the rise of sort of new online sources of political news, uh, political websites, particularly political tweeters and so on, was reshaping the media landscape in the UK in a way that hugely benefited Cor Jeremy Corbyn in the 2017 election. A lot of that, what was written at the time that sounded very knowledgeable and well-founded, if you read it after knowing what the 2019 general election result was, <laughs> has dated really horribly. And I think there's a similar question mark, isn't there, over the 2019 election result, which is it feels like in many ways that it was part of a longer term realignment of which we can see some of the signs of in the 2017 results under the, you know, when you delve into the details and so on. But you can imagine a subsequent election if it produces, let's say, a Labour victory and a Labour majority, that would recast how we view 2019 potentially quite heavily. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty over what's to come, which in some ways is really good, because what that really boils down to is there's a lot of power in the hands of the public and the public might change their, change their minds on things. And that's, that's a good position to be in for democracy. But in terms of trying to chart the course of what happens next there will i'm sure be quite a few national opinion polls in the next couple of weeks and one obvious thing to look out for is the national vote share figures what sort of impact 
do things like beer gate and the local election results appear to have had on the national figure vote share figures but i'm just interested what particularly will you be looking out for here and when you're thinking about for example that next political monitor that's going in the field shortly from ipsos mori what are you really going to be looking for to help give you a sense of what the impact has been of those all of those recent bits of political headline news just briefly on that first point you mentioned, I mean, it is interesting. We've had two general elections since Brexit and, you know, maybe 2017 is the is, is the mean, if you like, and 2019 was a specific set of circumstances that produced a majority and next time just goes back to that 2017 mean. That's pure, pure speculation on my part, but I, I do think it's... Uh, one one to follow what will i be looking at well i think one of the things i always say to people when they look at our ipsos political monitor is to try as best as you can particularly mid-parliament to look beyond the headline voting intention figure or at least not to ignore it but to take it in context of some of the other figures so i i tend to look at things in a, in a couple of different um different tranches first of all i want to understand kind of the mood of the country which is around how, economic optimism you know how, how to, is the country moving in the right direction or the wrong direction what are the the issues that are most on people's minds so we have our ipsos issues index which we do we've done for decades and this is where yeah. we ask people like, in their own words what are the issues facing the country and then we retrospectively code that up into themes and at the moment again it's cost of living inflation is number one but i like to first of all you want to sort of take all those things together to just to try and get a sense of how people are feeling then you want to look at the leader satisfaction ratings and government satisfaction ratings so is the government doing a good job running the country what do people think of the prime minister how does that compare to historic context you mentioned earlier we can go back to the late 70s on that so you know that's always that can be tricky because some you know, one of the ways we often do it is we compare like you know, the prime minister two years in, so all the prime ministers two years in. And of course, what that doesn't tell you is that, well, Thatcher's ratings two years in were awful, but then the Falklands War happened and, you know, things change. There's no, uh, there's one message I want to get across is there's no set trajectory. There's no rule about how the next two years has to go. That means we can all go home and just wait for the inevitable um, inevitable result. But I do think that's important because I don't think the opposition will ever win election in, in this country unless the current prime minister and government are sufficiently discredited in the minds of the voters to to, to warrant the feeling that there's a change needed and I don't think that that's where the numbers are at the moment Johnson and his government's ratings aren't very good but they're certainly by historic standards not awful they're not in John Major territory for example or even Gordon Brown territory and those are the those are the examples we have right in recent memory of governments losing office and then finally you've got to look at the the, the main opposition in, in a similar way like you know what do people think of the leader of the opposition what do they think of the labor party's brand and, and so on and so forth and as i've said not people aren't that convinced at the moment but then beyond that i think you do have to look at yes the liberal democrats i'm very curious at least in the very immediate political monitor, to see if there's any boost coming out of the the locals doesn't necessarily mean that the next general election can't be successful for the Liberal Democrats if, they, if there isn't one. But if there is, if we do see the Lib Dems three or four points up, you know, across several polls, that will be meaningful. And I guess the final point I'd say, sorry, the final, final, final point is around don't just look at England. And it's mm. the easiest thing in the world for London-based people like me to do. Try, I do try and avoid it. I've got family in Northern Ireland, for example. But, you know, it's, it's to keep an eye on Wales and Scotland as well. I've talked a lot about Wales here, but you've also got to bear in mind Scotland because you know, that is that is a place that I don't think it's an exaggeration to say kept Theresa May in power in, in 2017 with the Conservatives' performance there. 
the SNP just seem that they just seem to be rock solid there, don't they? Really, but you've got to keep an eye on that, both from for a Westminster election perspective, but also from the perspective of the breakup of the UK. Which, I mean, I know the polls on there for, for independence seem to be against, moving against at the moment, but it's hardly—I don't know about you—I I would hardly put my life savings on uh, a referendum result in Scotland should one ever, you know, should another poll happens so a very basic level the future of the uk demands you should watch scotland and northern ireland so um i guess a long-winded answer there but i think it's just trying to take the data in the round and not just look at oh you know uh, labor are six points ahead or, or actually no it's neck and neck now or, or whatever it is try and look under the bonnet because that will give you a picture of some of those indicators can be leading indicators about where voting intention will go and that's ultimately what we want to know ahead of a general election yeah, and it's an important point about just how different the political context is in England, Scotland and Wales. It's not just that there's a different party system in each, but also the who's in government is different in each. You know, there's a different party in government in each of those three places. And although when it comes to a Westminster election, that's not directly casting a verdict on the Scottish government or the Welsh government. Those both have significant influences on people's political views and how happy or not they are with things in, in those places. You're absolutely right. There's a potentially quite a different political story in those. And it's not that uncommon to see a general election in which Scotland or Wales or both move in different directions from England. And although England is the much larger than Scotland and Wales, and therefore is the predominant part of the story in that sense. Actually, when you're looking at the margins that can be the difference between winning or losing, Scotland and Wales absolutely can be hugely influential uh, on the results, which perhaps comes as, takes us back to the benefit of being able to look at local election results <laughs> and see those variations. So I think on that note, we probably should wrap this up. That's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for that, Kieran. I will include links to the Ipsos Mori polling archive uh, in the show notes so people can have a look at some of the polling that Kieran has mentioned and also to Kieran's Twitter account which is I find is really fascinating especially when new Ipsos Mori polls come out. Kieran of course being a pollster is almost contractually obliged to get terribly excited about any individual new poll even when it's from his own firm <laughs> and the rest of the time to remind us to not pay too much attention to any one poll but one thing that Kieran and the team at Ipsos Mori I think do really well is produce really good trend graphs each time a new poll comes out so even if you're we're all tempted to get overexcited about the latest data point there is immediately there right before our eyeballs the historic context for that data point as well which I find is a really useful sort of safety and sanity check and I will also dig out that new statesman article uh, that Kieran mentioned and include that in the show notes as well so people can find Kieran on Twitter at Kieran Pedley myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. So with huge thanks to Kieran. If people also enjoyed listening to Kieran on this episode, please do tell others about the podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you everyone for listening. Mm-hmm.